If you would turn um, scriptures to Luke 22, verse 47. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers in the temple of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and, and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the dark and the power of darkness. Who would pray with me before we get into this sermon? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we as a church need you this morning, Lord. I need you this morning, God. And pray that you are glorified, Lord. In all of our hearts and all of what we do and all of our thoughts, God, reflect your goodness, Lord. Your trustworthiness, Lord. God, be with us right now, Lord. I pray that uh, as we walk through this passage, Lord, as we've seen Jesus in, in, a, in a dark, hard moment in his life, Lord, reflecting on what is to come, God, I pray this morning we see Jesus' strength, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for who you are, God. I thank you for who you are in our church's life, in our life, in my personal life. Just pray that you're with us right now in your son's name. Amen. Three weeks ago, we saw, or is it four weeks ago? I don't know now. We saw Jesus at one of his weakest, darkest moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, which brought him to his knees in agony, pain, and sorrow. And last week, I felt God put on my heart to preach through Psalms 88, which is often titled the saddest psalm. I'm praying that we saw last week the connection of that psalm and Jesus. And I'm praying that you're encouraged if you have gone through a hard time or going through a hard time that Jesus came and entered into our suffering with us. Jesus not only knows what you are going through, he can empathize with you. And he cares. I want to encourage you um, some more this morning. It's often in our weakest moment that we find strength. And that's because in our weakest moment, we are forced to rely on God's strength. In Gethsemane, we saw Jesus in agony, pain, and sorrow, yet faithful. Yet trusting in his Father through it all. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This week, we're going to see Jesus' strength, 
his poise, his resolve, his determination, his unwavering courage, and his power. And I'd like to make this personal. It's been a hard month. It's been a hard month on the elders. It's been a hard month on the Whitney family. And it's been a hard month on our our church family. But in our weakest moments, if we trust God, we will come out on the other end of this trial stronger than ever. To the glory of God. So there's three points I'd like to go over today. And they all have to do with Jesus' strength. Jesus' strength in the, in the face of incredible hurt. Jesus' strength in his patient love for the disciples. Jesus' strength in his compassionate courage. So let's start with Jesus' strength in the, in the face of incredible hurt. And like I said four weeks ago, we saw Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane getting a foretaste of the cup. The cup of God's wrath. And, and we see Jesus surprised by terror. Just a taste brought him to his knees, made him sweat blood, physically took his strength away, and almost killed him. In Gethsemane, Jesus experienced just how scary God's wrath truly is. And then he had to actively choose the cross. And I, and I don't want us to miss something that happened during that time. Through all of that agony, sorrow, and pain, his disciples slept. They were supposed to be keeping watch, but Jesus literally said, keep watch, stay awake, pay attention. They were supposed to be keeping watch, they were supposed to be praying, they were supposed to be there for Jesus. Jesus asked them to stay awake and pray for one hour, and they slept. One pastor put it this way, One tragedy must not be overlooked. Throughout his ministry, Jesus provided for the needs, guidance, and teachings of his disciples. At Gethsemane, we see, perhaps for the first time, an occasion when Jesus needed his disciples. How encouraging it would have been as he faced the cross to know that his followers, his close friends, had shared in his agony with him. How meaningful would it have been for Jesus as he went through the suffering to have remembered that Peter, James, and John had shared his sorrow and had passionately prayed on his behalf. But they failed him, for he came and found them sleeping. Earlier, the disciples failed to understand his his teaching concerning his death. Now, when he sought their assistance during this crucial hour, they failed him again. The disciples were already beginning to forsake him. Context of our passage today, of course, is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It's at night. Jesus is praying. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The Greek word for crowd is aklos, which means crowd or multitude. It's an appropriate translation, a crowd. A group of people fairly large in size assembled for whatever purpose. That's the definition of that word. So in my mind, and, and just from growing up in the church, I picture 12 or 20 people, 
coming for Jesus. But what I love about the Gospels is that when you put them all together, you kind of get a clearer picture of, of what Luke means when he says a crowd. Mark adds that this crowd had swords and clubs. John adds that this crowd had lanterns and torches and weapons. Matthew and Mark say that this crowd was made up of, of chief priests and scribes and the elders. John adds Pharisees and their servants or slaves. But Matthew adds something interesting. He doesn't just say a crowd. He says a great crowd. A great crowd. That sounds to me more than 12 to 20 people. Why say a great crowd? Who are all these people that were there that night in Jesus' arrest? Well, John, the Gospel of John, gives us the clearest picture of that night, and this is what he says. In John 18, 3, he says this, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with laterns and torches and weapons. A band of soldiers, he says. Right? So I looked up, well, what's a band? The Greek word for band is spera, which spera means a Roman uh, military unit of about 600 soldiers. It's normally translated a cohort. If you're reading the NASB, that's actually how it's translated in this passage. Meaning there could have been up to 600 Roman soldiers that night with the Jewish leaders. And isn't that crazy? I mean, you think about this. The Pharisees, the elders, the scribes, these were all different people that didn't like each other. They had different points of views, and they were always arguing. And they all hated the Romans. Yet the hate of Jesus surpasses all of that where they come together in one event. This is probably, from what I understand and have been reading from commentators and historians, it's probably not a full cohort. But at least, for using that word cohort, 200 to 300 soldiers that night. I mean, this was a large crowd. This was a great crowd. My guess is, as the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders came to the Romans and said that made the accusation that Jesus was starting an uprising, that the Romans wanted to make it very clear that that wasn't going to happen. And so they sent an overkill of Roman soldiers to capture Jesus. And all of them were led by a man named Judas. Look at verse 47 again. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Interestingly, all three synoptic gospel adds this phrase, one of the twelve. One of the twelve. It's a common name for Judas, as, as we see through the Bible, probably just out of disbelief. Right? This man who spent three years with Jesus was eyewitness to his miracles, his compassion, his love, his teaching, his knowledge, his authority who just hours earlier had his feet washed by Jesus. How could this man betray Jesus? How do you spend three years with Jesus, the Son of God, and betray him for 30 pieces of silver? Right? This was unthinkable. But the answer is simple. 
Judas loved this world more than Jesus. Judas loved this world more than Jesus. I think Judas, out of all the disciples, got it. When Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he was the only disciple that, that, that knew Jesus wasn't talking in a parable there. He wasn't talking riddles there. At some point, Judas said to himself, he really expects us to die for him. He really expects us to sacrifice everything for him. And he's not going to be some geopolitical king. And I'm not going to get rich and powerful. And I want to be clear on this, too. This is my personal opinion. But I don't think Judas betrayed Jesus just for money. And I have two reasons for that. 30 pieces of silver is not much. It's the price of a slave. It's not much money. But the second reason is this. Judas was making money off of Jesus. John 12, 6 makes it clear. He said that Judas was a thief... And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. He made money off of Jesus. I don't think he betrayed Jesus for money. I think the cost of discipleship was too much. Judas loved this world too much. And you know what? The other disciples were not that far behind. They were figuring out. Luke adds something interesting about that night in Gethsemane. With Peter, James, and John. Look at Luke uh, 22, verse 45. And he, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They were full of sorrow. I think they're starting to understand. I think there is this internal battle with the disciples a love for Jesus versus a love for this world. Do I love Jesus more than this world and what this world has to offer? It's easy to say yes when things are good and we're not asked to sacrifice much. But what about when things get hard? What about when it really costs something? Look at verse 47 again. The man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So the sign, obviously the crowd agreed to, was Judas was going to lead this crowd to the place where the disciples were at night because Judas had that knowledge. And Judas, being very intimate with this group and knowing everyone and knowing Jesus, would show the crowd who Jesus was by giving him a kiss. The reason this is, is important is because it was dark. Right? They didn't have electricity and lights like we have, so the crowd didn't want to mistake who Jesus was and make sure they got him and he didn't get away. So, so Judas was going to signify who Jesus was with a kiss. But this has some cultural significance. Kissing culturally in that day and age and in that culture was a sign of close friendship. The Greek word here used in Luke is actually phileo. Does that sound familiar? It's one of the words for love in Greek culture. It was actually say, hey, I will go and show him love, which everyone understood that was a kiss. A kiss was a sign of love. One commentator wrote this, 
Because of his lowly position, a slave would kiss the feet of his master or a noble person, as would an enemy seeking mercy from a monarch. Ordinary servants would perhaps uh, kiss the back of the hand of the one they greeted, and those above the level of a servant would sometimes kiss the palm of the hand. To kiss the hem of a person's garment was a sign of reverence and devotion, but an embrace and kiss on the cheek was a sign of close affection and love, preserved only for someone that had a close, intimate, loving relationship with. Therefore, the betrayal and hurt Jesus must have felt that night was incredible. But here is where we see Jesus' strength, right? Listen, how do we see it? He doesn't stop it. He makes it very clear in Matthew 26. Jesus tells Peter, Do you think that that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I can stop this whenever I want to. This mob has no power here. But hurt was not going to stop him from obeying. Hurt was not going to stop him from loving sacrificially. Hurt was not going to stop him from loving those that hurt him. We see Jesus' strength in the face of incredible hurt. And listen, that's our model. Right? Selfless love. Even through the hurt, Jesus was willing to love those that hurt him. And Jesus modeled this sacrificially. So the first point is Jesus' strength in in the face of incredible hurt. The second point is Jesus' strength in his patient love for the disciples. Look at verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. No surprise who that was. Peter. I have one question, though, and like I said, when I study, I just ask questions, and I encourage you to do the same. Where did Peter get this courage from? I mean, think about that. In just a few hours, he's going to deny Jesus three times to a servant girl. But in this moment, right, think about this. Peter just attacked someone from a crowd of 300 people with at least 200 Roman soldiers by himself. Where did he get this culture, or this courage from? Well, turn with me to John 18, verse 3. John, again, I think gives the clearest picture of this night, and he adds something that Luke doesn't. And to be honest, this has always kind of bothered me because every movie or cartoon or anything that I've seen of this night where Jesus gets arrest has nothing about this in it. I mean, I, I, the passion... Right? Totally misrepresents what Scripture says about what happened this night. I looked it up on YouTube just to make sure that my memory of watching that, they had like 20 guys, right? 20 guys there, and don't even include this part of Scripture. Right? And I thought that was supposed to be a really accurate movie. Listen to what this says. I'm not talking bad about the passage, by the way. I'm just confused. Um, John 18.3 says this. So Judas, having procured a band, right, a cohort of soldiers, 
and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This was a large crowd with weapons and lanterns and torches. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Listen, he came forward and said to him, whom do you seek? He's the first one to speak. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. I am he. It's interesting. It's really just two words in Greek, not three. In Greek, it's ego me. Ego me. Which can be translated, I am. It's not always translated, I am. John 9, 9, there's a blind man that everyone's looking for, and he's telling everyone, I am he. Right? It's a, it can be a self-identifier. Um, identif- or, uh, saying that he's the person. Uh, identifier. Uh, that's the word. Ego um, me. But I want to look how John uses this word. Okay? When it comes to Jesus' use of this word. Right? John 6, 19. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to go through these really quickly. If you, if you want to, you can. But John 16, or 6, 19 through 20. When they, being the disciples had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, right? Jesus walking on water, and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, Ego a me, I am. Do not be afraid. Or John 13, verse 19. Jesus, talking to his disciples, he said this, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am a goemi. Or John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that a goemi, I am, you will die in your sins. Or John eight twenty eight. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am ego me. Or John six fifty one, I am ego me, the living bread. Or John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Or John eight twenty three, I am from above. Or John ten nine, I am the door. Or John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Or John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Or John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine and the most famous one. John 8, 58, before, or I say to you, before Abraham was, a go, a me, I am. I believe all of these point back to, to Exodus 3.13, where Moses asked God, right, if the people ask who you are, who sent me, what should I say? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you to me. Septuagint, Jim, I hope you guys are familiar with this, this word now. It's the, it's the Old Testament that was translated into Greek. Uh, the Old Testament obviously was written in Hebrew, but before the time of Jesus, it was translated into Greek for the Greek culture. Okay? It's the translation that Jesus actually quotes from more often than not. 
In Exodus 3.13, God tells Moses, A go, a me, has sent me to you. In other words, God told Moses that, that his name is related to two words. A go, a me. So what's this have to do with, with Jesus' arrest? Well, look at verse 6. John 18, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, a go, a me. When Jesus said to them, I am, they, the whole crowd, they drew back and fell to the ground. The priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the slaves, the Roman cohort, all fell to the ground. And that's an amazing display of power. And this is why Peter had so much courage. In his mind, he thought, finally, finally, Jesus is going on attack. To take down the Romans. Here's finally the, the, the warrior Messiah we've been looking for. Yet we know that Peter should have known better, right? Jesus has told them what was going to happen time and time again with details, right? One example, and we've gone over this, I don't know how many times, but one example is in Mark 32. Let me just read it. Telling the 12 again, he began to tell them what was, go- or what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Why didn't the disciples see that? That's what was happening. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. That's why this army was there. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And, and three days, and after three days, he will rise. So then Jesus time and time and time again told the disciples, I am going to die. I am going to die. And this is how it's going to happen. Patiently, patiently teaching them. And did they get it? No, Peter was ready to start a revolution. Peter struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. A couple of side notes on this I just think are interesting. First, Peter wasn't all that courageous. I mean, think about this. All the people in the crowd, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, and who did Peter attack? A slave. A servant of the high priest. But the second note I want you to, to think about, Jesus rarely to never used his power in an aggressive way. Right? All the miracles he did, right? he never used it in an aggressive way. And the only time, two things I can think of was the, the fig tree, that poor fig tree that, that he withers as a symbol of uh, symbolizing Israel, right? And then the temple where, however that happened, there had to have been some miraculous things that happened, kicking everyone out the way he did, right? Throwing everyone out. Why would Jesus use such power this night in an aggressive way? Well, I have two answers that I can think of. The first one is just purely to show that God was in control. Right? That, that, that God was in control. The crowd was not in control. John ten eighteen, Jesus says, No one takes it, and he's talking about his life, No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. 
And Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was a victim, but not a helpless victim. The Bible couldn't be more clear. Jesus freely chose the cross out of his love for us. So that's one reason. But I also think Jesus showed this this great power this night to protect his disciples, to protect his friends. For how foolish they were, for how thick-headed they were, Jesus was going to take care of those he loved. John 18, 6 says this, When Jesus said to them, Ego, a me. When Jesus said to them, I am, they, being the crowd, this massive crowd, drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, as they're standing up, I'm thinking, and probably a little more sheepishly, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. You know what he's doing here? He's making, making them affirm that they only came for him. Right? Making sure that they knew and they were stating that they only came for him and they only had the authority to arrest him so that the disciples could get away. And it says that very clearly. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you give me, gave me, I have lost not one. I am Jesus. I am the man you're seeking. Arrest me. Don't touch them. Do you see Jesus' love here? Do you see his love for his disciples? Do you see his patience here? I mean, his disciples were completely clueless for three years. And when they finally figured it out, when they, when they really realized that as Jesus was getting arrested, as he was getting persecuted, as he was getting handed over to the Romans and crucified, they were out of there. And when they got it, finally, they were gone. They scattered like lost sheep. But Jesus showed patient love for his disciples. We see Jesus' strength in, in the face of incredible hurt. We see Jesus' strength in, in his patient love for the disciples. But we also see Jesus' strength in his compassionate courage. Verse 51. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Again, this is Luke, who's the physician, he's a doctor, and, and you see throughout the Gospel of Luke him being very interested in the physical body. Right? And this, this, this slave had his ear chopped off by Peter. I'm guessing it even has bad aim. Um, Jesus heals his ear miraculously. I mean, Jesus is even showing compassion to his enemies, those that are arresting him to have him killed. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me, or have you come out as against a robber with swords and with clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus here is exposing the hypocrisy and the cowardlessness of the religious leaders. 
the hypocrisy, because if Jesus was truly a criminal, right, if he, if he was like a robber or, or a criminal, then they would have arrested him during the daytime. They wouldn't hide and try to, try to find him at night to arrest him. But the cowardliness is this. They were afraid of the people, right? There is no conviction in this uh, 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 religious leaders. They just wanted to save their own reputation. That's why they were trying to arrest Jesus and put him to death, because he was making them look foolish. But they were also trying to save their own skin. That's why they wanted to do it at night. There was no conviction, Yet Jesus in, in Mark 14 says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Right? In other words, this is all part of God's plan. And he even tells Peter in, in John 18, 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, it's God's will that I drink this cup, the, the cup of wrath, the, the wrath of God. This is God's will. Should I not do it, Peter? And, and Peter, let me remind you, if I don't, you will. Listen, out of love for God, Jesus was obedient. Out of his love for others, Jesus was self-sacrificial. That's our model. That's our model. Obedience, no matter what the cost. Obedience, no matter what the cost. And love that is self-sacrificial. Jesus showed amazing courage and strength when he went to the cross. So in this passage, I believe we see Jesus' strength in the face of incredible hurt. Jesus' strength in in his patient love for his disciples. And Jesus' strength in his compassionate courage. I mean, you want to talk about betrayal and hurt. Jesus was, was betrayed and hurt by his disciples, his closest friends. One betrayed him outright. The others left him. Right? Peter denied him three times. Yet Jesus still patiently loved them. We need to be more patient with each other. We need to be more patient with each other. Guys, this is our model Here's one of my biggest fears for, for COBC, for Country Oaks, and it's kind of been one of my biggest fears for years now as a pastor. Because of our size and, and maybe how this room is set up, I don't know, you can come Sunday morning and kind of hide and check off church on your list of things to do. Never really getting intimately involved. Never really making intimate relationships but here's a question I have for you. And I don't have anyone in mind, please. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. How are you going to model Christ's selfless love in the church if you never put yourself in a situation where you could get hurt? It's popular today to say, I've been hurt by the church. Or we even made it a phrase, church hurt. I mean, church hurt has happened to me. That's why I don't go, or that's why I don't get involved. You know, as I've talked to people that have been been hurt by the church or have had church hurt, when I talk with them, it usually means a person in the church has hurt them, not the whole church. 
Listen, hurt should never stop you from getting involved in a church. Hurt should never stop you from getting involved in a church. God uses hurt to sanctify us. I can think of at least three ways how God uses hurt to sanctify us. First, hurt makes you rely on Christ's strength. Hurt makes you rely on Christ's strength. One of the saddest passages we have in Scripture is at the end of 2 Timothy. This is the end of Paul's ministry. This is one of the last things he's written. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4.16. Again, this is Paul. At my, Paul, at my first defense. I, I don't know what was going on in this time, if this was in front of a court or in front of people that were trying to hurt him, I don't, I don't know. But, but at his first defense, no one came to, came to stand by me. All, but all deserted me. I heard John Piper preach on this, and, and he's pretty sure that one of the people that deserted him was Luke, his closest friend. And this is what Paul says, may it not be charged against them. Paul was abandoned, and he didn't want God to be upset with those that abandoned him. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Through Paul's hurt, God was glorified. Through Paul's hurt, Christ's strength was highlighted. So, so hurt is an opportunity for us to rely on Christ's strength. But, but hurt also gives us an opportunity to love like Christ. To love like Christ. Why are we still here after salvation? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, think about that question. You can do everything better in heaven. Why not, after we get saved, go straight to heaven? You can worship better. You'd obey better, right? We're not going to sin in heaven. You hear God more clear. Right? You see God better. We will fellowship with each other better. I have a book in my office that, that's titled, The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. You know what that is? Evangelize, Right? I always said, I want to write a sequel to that book called The Two Things You Can't Do in Heaven. Because one's evangelized for sure. You know what the second one is? Suffer. Suffer. This life is your only chance to respond to hurt and suffering like Jesus. This life is your only chance to love like Jesus in that way. To love sacrificially by loving those who hurt you. By loving those who sinned against you. Right? Jesus didn't love people that he made up an artificial hurt for. These were people that sinned against him. We are people that sinned against him. And he loved us sacrificially to the point of death. Death on a cross. It's your only chance. Don't run away from it. Don't ask for it. I'm not saying pray for hurt and suffering. I guarantee if you get intimately involved in a church that's full of sinners, you're going to come across hurt. You're going to come across sin. And I I guarantee this, you're going to hurt someone and sin against someone. The last way God uses hurt 
or there's probably more ways, don't get me wrong. The third way I have that God uses hurt is hurt and conflict helps root out idols. Hurt and conflict helps root out idols. As you get intimately involved in a church, Country Oaks, our church, any church, but I'm just saying our church, there's going to be hurt and conflict at points. And conflict doesn't necessarily mean sinful conflict. There's conflict that's not sinful, right? Just disagreement. But hurt and conflict always helps root out idols. It's one of the reasons God wants us in community, right? Family and church. James 4, 1 through 2 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Like James is going to tell us why, they, why we fight. <laughs> we should listen. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, don't look at that other person. Look at what's going on in your own heart. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You want something, in other words, and someone gets in the way of what you want and you get angry. And there's conflict. And, and that, that getting in the way may be sin. They may be sinning against you, but there's, there's conflict. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's something that if we did as a church, I think we'd root out so many idols. Listen, whenever you get angry, no matter when it is or what you're doing, whenever you get angry, even if it's because someone has sinned against you, whenever you get angry, stop and ask, what did I want in that moment? What did I want and how did that person get in the way of it? And do I love it, whatever it is, what I wanted? Do I love it more than obeying God? Because God has asked us to love one another, even if we get sinned against. Do I love it more than loving my brother sacrificially? And I promise you, you're probably close to an idol. Those are three things that only happen in close community. In close community. And this is why here at Country Oaks, we're going to be pushing small groups and serving. We'd love for you guys to get into small, intimate groups where you're intimately sharing life together. Don't run away from hurt. Don't run away from hurt. Like I said, I don't have anyone in my mind right now, but if you come here and and just sit on Sunday mornings and don't want to get any more intimate than that because you're afraid of getting hurt, get involved. Get involved. Remember, God uses hurt. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord and God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for modeling us an impossible standard, but yet still our standard. What Christ did is amazing. All of humanity, Lord, we see the unity of the Romans, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the scribes, unified in one thing, that's hatred of your Son. All of us have sinned against you and your Son. Yet you chose not to, to strike out in, in anger against us, but instead came down as a baby, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross sacrificially for us, patiently working with 12 men that did not get it, and showing them love and patience and kindness, Lord. That's amazing, Lord. That's our standard. That's our model. 
And of course, we're going to get hurt against, Lord. Help us to respond against those people that hurt us, that sin against us in, in the way that you did, Lord, in a loving way, in a patient way. Bold with truth, Lord. God, I pray that you're with our church in this season. Lord, be with us, Lord. Help us as we figure out how to move on and move forward, Lord, and take steps into the future, God. We don't know what's going to happen. You do. Lord, you do. Help us to live in a, in a God-honoring way, Lord, that when people in our community see us from the outside, Lord, they see people that are reflecting you. God, be with us right now. In your son's name, amen.